So yes, I was getting dangerously sort of pigeonholed as this guy who's who's into French Baroque, which I'm absolutely not. Versailles actually almost makes me feel sick when I go there. I mean, I think it's an amazing work of art, but it's such a world of control and domination and didactic landscape, which is the epitome of what I don't like. I don't like telling people how to behave in a landscape. I want to perhaps suggest stuff, but you know, to me, the landscape is is the is the last sort of bastion of personal liberty in the art in a way you know you're, you're not suggesting to people how they should respond how they should react you're perhaps just creating a template for lots of options of different behavior you're, you're wanting people to find their own way through through the story hi i'm dan rubenstein and this is the grand tourist i've been a journalist for nearly 20 years most recently as the home and design director at departures magazine and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion art architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. There's nothing quite like a great garden that captivates even the coldest of hearts. Like any great work of art, a beautifully designed landscape inspires awe, creates a unique sense of place, and is just as worthy of praise as any skyscraper. My guest today, English landscape architect and designer Tom Stewart-Smith, is one of the greats. Not only do his spaces have a definite wow factor, He brings an emotional depth and a keen sense of history to everything he does. Tom has designed eight gold medal-winning gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show, with three being awarded Best in Show. He was once the subject of a major museum exhibition, and his global roster of clients even includes the Queen herself. Born and raised in England, he studied in Cambridge before turning to landscape architecture. After training under designers such as Hal Moggridge, he set out on his own in London in 1998. His first major monograph was just released, Tom Stewart Smith, Drawn from the Land, which chronicles his naturalistic style, from a minimal-looking space in India to a pristinely manicured lawn in North Yorkshire. If his gardens seem like an oil painting come to life, that's for good reason. He draws his gardens by hand, and so his spaces seem both perfectly down-to-earth, but also dreamlike at the same time. As a city boy who equates a walk through Central Park with going on safari, I'm no green thumb. But understanding the approach Tom brings to his work is just as deep and meaningful as any painter or architect. Dare I say it, he even makes me think about having a yard of my own someday. I caught up with Tom Stewart-Smith from his bustling studio. Tom, you're someone who's done so many different kinds of projects over the years. What makes a quintessential garden of yours? I, I guess there are a number of strands. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in... in you could say calibrating the relationship between man and nature. But I'm also really interested in the cultural context of the place you make a garden in. So if you look at some of some of the gardens there, they're they're highly they're highly structured, um, in some cases, you know, qu- quite ornamental, um, because they're they're in the context of of some, you know, very historic garden which which might have, you know, a lot of ornament to it. In other places, um, there is, uh, in some places, there's, a, there's quite a bit of formality in the foreground and then giving way to the landscape. In other places, the informality comes right up to the door. Um, I can think of a garden um, in the book in, in uh, Massachusetts where there, there kind of is no garden. So, um, so I, find it, I do find it quite difficult to generalize about my work, but I think that perhaps the most important aspect, which does go through it all, is that I'm interested in bringing nature close to people's lives and creating gardens which have a sense of 
completeness and you could say otherness. You know, they're, they're not gardens which have generally um, a swimming pool here, a jacuzzi there, a mini bar over over to the right, and you know, loads of loads of anthropocentric stuff in it. You know, they're they're, they're not sort of outdoor sitting rooms. They're places which. Ideally, when you when you step into them, the process of of going from, um, you know, the place that the room where you're living into the garden, that that very process is is a transformative one, and you're in a different place where different kinds of rules apply. And in the world of design, uh, you have sometimes the terms of how people identify changes depending on where you are and and how they personally identify do you take to the title uh, garden designer landscape architect sometimes these terms are interchangeable how do you how do you sort of like to present yourself as i'm i'm kind of quite happy with anything really i mean i it, it, it's a great world of the um freud talked about the narcissism of narcissism of minor differences didn't he about how people who are actually very proximate um uh look down at their nose at, at each other. So, you know, architects often tend to slightly look down on their, their noses at, at, at planners who look down on their, no- their, their noses at landscape architects who look down their noses at gardeners, you know, and there's this sort of great kind of cascade of, 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 um, of what we in England would call snootiness, you know. Um, I, I, do, I don't really mind. I mean, I, you know, sometimes I'm working as a garden designer. Sometimes I'm working as a, I feel as a gardener. Then other times I'm working as a as a sort of landscape architect or even a landscape planner, so I I feel that the important thing is to is to work in the right mode for the right context. And an early an early profile of yours, um, I believe it was Garden Design Magazine, sort of uh, pegged you as someone who, you know, your trademark being sort of contemporary interpretations of historical gardens this was quite a while ago did you feel that that was is that accurate to say or is or is it something maybe you've evolved in your in your career this is going back a few decades yeah i i i think that was i mean it was curious the f- the first two gardens i made for the chelsea flower show one was for karl lagerfeld and was was about um you know he was obsessed by the baroque so it was it was um it was like a little French cabinet de verdure, you know, a little, a beautiful little green garden with. It actually had a gilt statue in it, you know, which then went to the the, the famous landscape garden at Stowe afterwards. Um, yes, it was a historicist little little um, little bijou jewel case. And then somebody asked me to do um, a garden to celebrate the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the death of Lenotch. Um, so. Um, and yes, I've I've worked a lot in historic landscapes. I find that really interesting. You know, these rich cultural documents, and then adding another layer onto them. And I've done, you know, there are examples of that in the book, um, making the garden for the Queen at Windsor Castle. Um, and I suppose the ultimate example of that actually is the restoration of of this Islamic garden in Marrakesh. You know, where where the rules of gardening are absolutely laid down. You know, if you're going to make a Quranic garden, you you obey, you obey the Quranic rules. You know, there are only certain plants that you should really use, and there are certain formulas to to laying out the garden which you have to abide by. And did you have to study the, the Quran and, and kind of absorb this kind of thing? Yeah, yes, yes, up to a point. I mean, I, I don't, I don't speak Arabic, or um, but yes, I mean, I read, I read quite a bit of the Quran, and I looked at a lot of, of particularly Moroccan um, traditional gardens and other gardens in the in the Maghreb and further afield. What are some of the sort of 
tenets of a of a Quranic garden. Well, the the I mean the the you know the 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 most important part of it is the is the the whole quadripartite arrangement, the shagbar, um, which you see in virtually all the metaphor of the division of the world by by the the four rivers of paradise. But then it goes further than that. You know, the, the sacred trees of the garden, which in um, you know in the arid countries um, are based on the palm, the fig, the olive, and the pomegranate. And then you know there are all the plants mentioned in the Quran, which you have to have there, and it is extraordinary. I mean, it has been one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life to create a garden which which was in a culture not my own, and for people to visit that garden and to know when they go into it instantly what it means for them. And a paradise garden means something to a Muslim, which is completely unparalleled by anything else in, in Western culture. You know, you, you, a Westerner does not go into a garden uh, and, and have the same depth of religious experience uh, in it that a Muslim would going into a paradise garden. And that's a rather extraordinary um, experience to have had to have made a garden. I'm in a real privilege to, to have made a garden outside my own culture, which has meant in many ways more to other people than it has done to me. Before we return to Nathan, I'd like to thank our sponsor, B&B Italia, a leader in luxury designer furniture. Founded in 1966, the company stands out for its representation of contemporary culture and for its research and innovation, which has allowed the brand to create products with unique style and elegance. The brand is the fruitful partnership between the company's research and development center in Northern Italy and the best international design professionals. The iconic products of B&B Italia radically mark the history of design. The brand has so many legendary pieces, and there's one to fit every personality. If I had to suggest an icon of B&B Italia to Tom Stewart Smith, I would choose the Edamame Sofa by Piero Lassoni. Inspired by the shape of a soybean, this thin, ultra-curvaceous sofa on tall legs is just about as organic as a seat can get. It has light stitching and uses a stretch fabric, and I know that Tom would instantly feel at ease with its curves that fuse together to form three classic elements, all in one. High-back chair, chaise, and ottoman. Speaking of icons, which one is right for your personality? Visit bebitalia.com for more information. One could say that Tom Stewart Smith has designed for all different kinds of royalty. From fashion royalty like Karl Lagerfeld, who gave the young Stuart Smith a big lift early on, to actual royalty with the 2002 Jubilee Garden at Windsor Castle, created for the Golden Jubilee of Her Majesty in 2002. Like any great designer, he's good with exacting clients. Um, I generally draw in pencil in black, in black and white. In fact, the only the only um, presentation drawing I did in the first period of my of my working life was for the Queen, where I did I sent her um, a lot of pencil sketches, and um, and the note came back saying uh, the Queen would prefer to see these in color, so I had to I had to <laughs> apply lots of watercolor on the uh, on them and before I sent them back. The Queen wants color. You know, once the once the Queen had gotten the her her watercolors. Um, what was that sort of working process like in terms of planning it and executing it and, and, and actually seeing it to its fruition? Because essentially, it's something that you probably have to keep up and make sure that, you know, two years, three years, it's still keeping its integrity, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't ringing her up every <laughs> Sunday morning um, to discuss the planting plan. Um, as you can imagine, she's, she was surrounded by a protective ring of, of courtiers who do most of the, well, do all of the, the, the sort of, 
you know, the transmission and filtering of information. And, and sometimes, you know, m- most of the time they do that terribly well. Sometimes it's a bit of a challenge when her intent is not necessarily sort of transmitted through as directly as it might be. Um, and in fact, there was, a, there was an issue there where I had designed the main drive as an 18th century carriage drive going up from what's called the advance gate, where the, where the castle meets the town, right up to the castle. Um, so just three and a half meters wide. And it was virtually built before she looked out of the window, one of the towers in the castle, and said, well, that's not nearly wide enough. We need to be able to march the guard up at six abreast. Well, nobody told me that. <laughs> so the whole thing had to come out and be rebuilt, um, which is, a, which is, you know, from a design point of view, from my point of view, was rather a pity because um, it ceased to look like a carriage drive and more like a sort of B road going through the middle of my garden. But there we are, you know, it, it had to do what it had to do. And actually, you know, the, the only time I, I got to, to show her around the garden was when it was, um, when it was open and she came and opened it and I was able to walk around with her um, explaining to her, you know, why I had done what I'd done. And just to go back a little bit, um, <laughs> definitely uh, uh, down to earth, um, your early experience of working for Karl Lagerfeld, that had happened when I believe that you were profiled in House and Garden uh, magazine. And then from what I heard that he had reached out to you to do the Chelsea Flower Show. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was he like as a client? You wouldn't think of him as someone who would who would uh, hire, you know, a, a garden designer. But w- what was that like? Yeah, I mean, he was uh, an amazing man. I mean, you know, hugely knowledgeable about French Baroque gardens for a start. Mm. And he had this amazing collection of, of paintings of the the garden at Mali, which was one of Louis XIV's gardens, with all the statues coloured in multicoloured colours, you know. So he was a pretty scholarly, you know. He, he'd go back and find out what these gardens were like originally. And I would send him sketches and, you know, Often there'd be a silence, and then a then something like a beautiful book would arrive through the post, you know, with a little note from him. I mean, he was he was a formidable, formidable man with a great, quite a polymath as well. So you know, yes, I mean, an intimidating person to work for, but with great resources of scholarship and enthusiasm as well. A lot of your portfolio is sort of synonymous with um, the work you've done at the Chelsea Flower Show. And three were best in show. You've won many gold medals. I think for uh, American listeners that aren't familiar with the Chelsea Flower Show is and how it works. Can you just sort of explain briefly what it is and 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 its sort of centrality to to your world? It's cachet, yes, yes. Yeah. So it's it's a week at the end of May, and it's uh, run by the Royal Horticultural Society for for, for whom it's about their biggest commercial uh, money spinner if you can use such a vulgar expression. And the centerpiece of it, perhaps, is, is, is what's known as the marquee, which is a display of flowers. But increasingly, over the last 25 years, I would say that the, the show gardens have become perhaps the biggest sh- show stopper or, or attraction of the show. And they are probably up to 10, 15 of these show gardens, which are generally sponsored by philanthropists or commercial companies. Or in the past, it tended to be newspapers, luxury products. So I did a lot of gardens for Laurent Perrier, uh, the Champagne House which was a wonderful client to work for because they they weren't interested in marketing anything other than their own sort of broad concept. So they just wanted something which was, you know, as it were, fresh, elegant, modern, you know, that sort of thing. That was about as far as the brief went. And some of them are very expensive. I mean, some of these gardens, you know, um, may cost over half a million pounds and are there for a week. It reminds me of a show house in a way. You have everyone gets a room. Instead, you're getting a little plot of land and it's 
like a world's fair almost. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and the, and the plots would be generally about 20 20 meters by 10 meters, so that's what 25 yards by by 12 yards, something like that. Is it hard to work in such a constraint of a size or is it easier because it's so small? It's quite difficult to to do it really well, and the con- the constraints are heavy in that you know you've got 2 weeks to build it and to produce something which is immaculate. So it's exhausting to do. I mean, I, I, I last did one. I haven't done a judged show garden for, for 10 years, but I have done ones that have been for either for the RHS itself or for... Um, you know, major charities where they've they've been supporting the RHS, so they've not been judged. So I've been let off the hook of the whole sort of you know the judging thing, which is another part of it. The the gardens are judged by a panel, of which I'm often <laughs> I'm often one of the judges when I'm not showing. And what do they look for? What does what does a good judge look for in, in a garden? They look for um, rather boring things like sort of finish and and detail. They look for um, the scale of the endeavour, the ambition. But perhaps the biggest thing they look for is something which um, has a sort of design integrity and um, is conce- you know conceptually hangs together. And that's been a change, I think, over the last ten years. That it used to be most mostly about plants. So if you designed a garden that was actually pretty horrible but was full of plants in immaculate condition, you could still get a gold medal. I would say that's probably not the case now. That you, that it has to be it has to be quite a good piece of design as well or at least a reasonable piece of design but it is still it still very much has a strong plant focus as lots of people would say it is the royal horticultural society not the royal society of garden design so you know that there is that there is that historic emphasis on um on how plants should be used in a garden setting before we return to tom stewart smith i'd like to thank our sponsor artemist Artemist is the world's fastest-growing online retail destination for exclusive Italian luxury design, decor, lighting, and gifts. Founded in 2015, Artemist celebrates and preserves authentic Italian craftsmanship by providing a global platform for more than 1,000 independent producers, designer makers, and artisans, and features thousands of exclusive products. The unparalleled online edit you find on Artemist includes the most extraordinary Italian makers for which the country is world-renowned. Design lovers and casual shoppers alike can search through more than 50,000 items, and you can take a closer look with multimedia content such as 360-degree views, videos, and detailed descriptions of each maker's history and specialized techniques. Listeners of The Grand Tourist can enjoy 10% off at Artemist with the code THEGRANDTOURIST, that's one word. So visit Artemist.com for more information. That's A-R-T-E-M-E-S-T dot com. And what makes a good garden? I think I think um, a a good garden sort of rests on various foundations. I mean, it needs to be. Um, it doesn't have to be a great site, but it needs to be a good site. You know, it needs to be a site with some interesting characteristics to it. I mean, I've 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 recently made a garden in a part of a northern English town called Wakefield, which you know some people would not particularly regard as being a a, a great site because it has a, a five lane busy, very busy road going along one side um, and some derelict warehouses on the side and actually a remarkable contemporary art gallery on the other side, which is why the garden is there. But I think it's a really good garden because it has a sense of definition. Um, it has a, a, a unique kind of typology. Um, it relates to its context. And it is a, it's a really, it's a vivid response to, to a place. I, I think that um, 
stepping back from that a little bit, I think that all good gardens have to be a, collaborate, a collaboration between a client and a, and a designer. And that has to be a productive collaboration and a respectful one. And do you, do you feel that garden design is something that is sort of more respected as, a, as sort of a, a field of design now than when you first perhaps started in the field? Or well, I think it's I, th- I think it's certainly more acknowledged. Do you know when I first started, um, if you if you made a garden for the British people who had money, um, they they probably had old money, and you know it was regarded as as, as one of the accomplishments of a, of a of a British gentleman that you knew how to shoot grouse past the fort and design a garden. You know, I mean, it's sort of ridiculous, isn't it? And I think it was only with the influx of new money, and it's always been like this, isn't it? That that um, new money has has turned to designers to to support their their lifestyle so so i started getting work in the 90s from people who were making money in in the british banking system largely it was not from the old you know it was not from the old school aristocrats i think interestingly now you know one of the biggest projects i've been doing in the last sort of three or four years is at chatsworth you know which is one of the sort of great english um, aristocratic houses commissioned by the Duke and Duchess, and that's because they have realised, you know, that that yard garden designers do bring a skill which maybe you know their in-house team doesn't have. Um, so I've had a wonderful time working with their with their in-house team, who are absolutely fantastic, um, making a new landscape in in what is, you know, one of the great landscapes design landscapes of the world. You know, where everybody from Capability Brand to Paxton and and a succession of, of, of great designers have worked over the years. The nature of wealth and who would commission a garden of your caliber has changed so much since you started your studio. Has the evolving client roster changed the way you approach the English garden? I, th- I think it has. I think it has throughout the world. I mean, bear in mind that, that probably a third of all the gardens in this book are are not in Britain. I think that people are much more open-minded. I mean, you know, the English traditional sort of garden owning classes had probably a prefixed idea about what a garden was all about. It was about sort of displaying plants and having a big collection of stuff and showing it off to your friends. I think now that people who come to it from outside that tradition are probably much more interested in the garden as a means of of getting closer to nature, of having wildlife and biodiversity around their house, of you know having a comfortable life, you know a sort of a fluid interface between the internal living space and the outdoor living space. I mean th- these are these are ideas which are much more familiar to the to the sort of magazine reading, television watching, Pinterest collecting generation of today, who are, who are much more literate in a way visually literate because they just see so much i mean and that and that brings with it risks you know uh, in my idea of 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 hell as a designer slightly is is that you meet somebody who says oh yes and i'll send you my pinterest board because there are lots of things there which i'd like to have in the garden and you think oh my goodness and is there something you know being um there's something so quintessentially british about uh gardening as a pastime is that um a benefit to your career as you've been touching upon or is it kind of like being a pizza chef in Italy where everybody <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> has uh, a preconceived notion about what you're doing and what's good and what's not good do you ever wonder to yourself like what if I had been born in the US would I yes, be the same yes. type of designer well I, I'm sure I wouldn't be because I think that um, because I'm really interested in in the tension between um, between a tradition and what you what you do uh, on the edges of that, or sometimes completely outside that, and I think you know, the, 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 having 
having worked quite a lot overseas, you know, when I do come back to a sort of working on a sort of great traditional uh, English garden, like there's one in the book, which is this arts and crafts garden in the Surrey Hills, sort of south of London. You know, it's got a, it's got a, it's got a white garden. It's got a fountain garden, a rock garden, a wild garden, an orchard garden. You know, it's it's bonkers. All in these sort of separate parts. It's not one concept at all, really. It's a, it's an eclectic concept, like having a having a library with different sections. And and but it is pretty amazing. You know, it's 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 each garden sort of gives you a different way of relating to the planet in a way. Um, so I I think that being an English gardener, you know, and 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 having the being in a country which has the you know the greatest horticultural charity in the world the RHS and having all that stuff is is a great start in life and i think even even in the states you know people people who are gardeners they feel that a fellow gardeners are, are fairly few and far between well that's not really the case here you know there there are so many there are so many people who are into gardening um sometimes it's almost um a bit claustrophobic and so it's been actually rather nice for me in my in my private life to make a garden in a part of the world where there aren't quite so many of these great gardens you know i live 20 miles northwest of london well most of the sort of great gardens are not really quite in that part of the world i'm almost in suburbia um so there aren't people generally looking over my fence saying oh what tom what is tom up to you know that that's quite a relief i can just sort of get on with stuff but being being english i think is 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 a is a good start in the gardening world or being british anyway when someone you know reads your book for the first time and when they close it, what would you like them to to take away from that experience? What do you want them to know about you and your work? I think I'd want them to have a feeling that a garden is a way of both connecting with the world in many different ways, but also a way of sort of articulating our own place in the world. I think that um, a garden is a a garden is a kind of unique canvas to be able to do that because. It is it is made up of the world. It is a it is a it's almost like a sort of suit of clothes that you'd wear around a place. It's the it's the sort of intermediary between the nest, as it were, you know, the 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 house that you're living in, and and the cosmos and the and the planet. Um, it's this kind of filtration layer between this this kind of sort of um, envelope around you as a, as an individual or around a, a group of people, which which says something about about not just um, their physical relationship to the planet, but their emotional and philosophical relationship to, to the world. And in your career, the, our understanding of things like sustainability and sort of environmental stewardship have really evolved and are, you know, and, and especially today, they've, they're front and center culturally and politically. Um, is, how, do you, how do you see your role um, in all of this in 2021? I, th- I think I think increasingly, as you have a more of a profile, you have a duty to put those things front and center of your work, and and where where possible, we we try and do that. I mean, we, um, you know, the the recent garden we did at Chatsworth, you know, we we managed to do it almost all plastic free, which was quite you know quite an achievement actually in today. So we had to use recycled um, recycled pots um, with no plastic in them. Um, and where possible, use bare root plants, which is something that isn't used that often, but is perfectly doable. Um, limit the, n- the number of plants that were imported. Um, so generally, you know, taking the carbon um, level of the work right down, because I think that often m- making gardens can be pretty carbon intensive. And, that, and that's a rather ironic position to be in. 
And if you had to uh, give someone an education in in gardens, uh, aside from your book, of course, but uh, more uh, historical ones, what would you say? What is on the punch list for you know must see in your life to, to truly sort of understand what a great garden would be? What, what would those locations? Okay, I'll choose one from. Um, from every country. I mean, and, and I'll be, I'll be very unselfish and not choose Britain because there are okay. so many things here. I would, I would take them to, to Villalante in, in Italy, um, great Renaissance garden, a great humanist garden, um, where the house is actually divided into two pavilions and, and the water runs between. I mean, it's a garden laid out in the, in the, in the early 17th century, but nevertheless, it feels in many ways very contemporary and it's a, it's a wonderful sort of late Renaissance masterpiece. I think I'd probably take them to the High Line, you know. I mean, you've got it there in New York, haven't you? Um, I'm, I'm a great admirer of, of Pete Adolf. And, and, and there, you know, he was working with a great architectural team. And, it, and it's an astonishing achievement, that. And really has shown the way to so many inner city revitalization schemes throughout Europe. Um, there's no coincidence that, that, you know, in London, they've started a project which won't be anything like the, the, the New York High Line, but it's called the Camden High Line on some old railway sidings and, and, a, and an active railway track in North London. Uh, and that, that is the High Line effect, which has been really enormously palpable throughout the world. I mean, that is the most influential landscape project of this century, I think. Without, without a question of doubt. I mean, a garden that's particularly, that I think is particularly wonderful and not very well known is on the edge of um, Amsterdam in a place called Amstelveen. And it's called the, the Tyser Park. It's a garden laid out originally in the 1940s in some old polders. Um, so it has water running through it generally. And the, and the brief of the garden was it was to be made using entirely plants that, that were theoretically native to the Dutch landscape. And it's still beautifully maintained and it's, and it's a heartbreakingly beautiful uh, place using the most simple of ingredients. Um, it's a wonderful lesson in making a garden that has that is ecologically diverse and appropriate, that has wonderful patterns of light and shade, uh, and is but but despite being you know very beautiful and natural, is is fundamentally a garden for for people. Tom, if your book really inspires someone to head out into their own garden, what would you want them to really understand and take into their own backyard? I think it's always about knowing your site um, in the deepest way. So um, it's, it's often about knowing the history of your site. No site doesn't have a history. Then it's then about discovering what the, what the ecology of it is. Who, what, what, what else is living there other than you? What's living in the soil? What is the soil made of? Is there any soil? Then what is the, you know, what is the climate? What is, where's the wind coming from? Um, what are the patterns of light and shade? What grows around you? What, what other plants are, are cultivated um, or, or naturally growing with you? I would still say that the kind of, you know, when you're starting making a garden, the kind of inductive model is probably still the best of assembling all this information in quite a methodical way. And then probably actually putting it one, to one side, not, not trying to um, uh, make a garden by, by sort of some inexorable logic of a, of a diagram, you know, but coming to a, 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 as full an understanding of the place. And in, and in some cases, you know, if you're making a garden for somebody else, of the people and the culture of that place that you possibly can. Thank you to Tom and his team at the studio for making this interview happen. His book, 
Tom Stewart Smith, Drawn from the Land, is available now. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. Transcriptions are by Kara Johnson. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. 